this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Once again, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi. This is the show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true, and where we help you answer the question, why should I become a Christian? I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, I'm Kirk Hastings. And we have a great guest on today. We have a cold case homicide detective. Doesn't that sound great, Kirk? Ooh, it sounds like something from a, one of those great old uh, movies on Turner Classics. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds great. So we're looking forward to talking to Jay Warner Wallace very shortly. But we want to remind people to check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, where we have archived radio shows. If you like podcasts, you can find us on iTunes or Double Twist. And if you want to email us, please email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. And be sure to check out the Rasho Christie website, rashochristi.org. So there's a bunch of items coming up. Uh, I want to remind people about Worldview Academy. This is a terrific camp experience for your middle school and high school children. Check them out at worldview.org. The programs start in June and go all the way through October. So that's a great program. Both of my sons went to their program and it was a terrific experience. Then we told people about what's coming up in Philadelphia for the local people if they'd like to go to a really interesting program. It's an entire day. It's going to have Dr. Stephen Meyer and Dr. John Lennox. It's the Westminster Conference on Science and Faith. I try to go every year. I'm hoping to make it again this year. So it's Friday night, April 5th, and all day Saturday, April 6th. So you can check that out at scienceandgod.org slash WTS. And then also for local people, just a reminder that I'll be speaking at Kennett High School in Kennett Square, PA, the 27th at 7 p.m. And the topic is Evolution, What Your Science Teachers Won't Tell You. So local listeners can come on out and say hello to me there. Kirk, there were only a couple of news items, none of them really apologetics-oriented, but a couple of Christian worldview items. Did you get a chance to hear Dr. Ben Carson's speech from the National Prayer Breakfast? No, I didn't. Really, really good. Oh, I have to correct that. I did hear some of it. Uh, there were some news reports about it. It was, uh, if I recall, it was, uh, how shall I put it, um, kind of bold? <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yep, it was bold. Speaking truth to power. Yep, that's the way they kept characterizing it. <laughs> yep, but very good. I recommend people watch it if they haven't seen it because it gives a good example of how the Christian worldview can improve things. It just makes human flourishing better. So a really great advocate for the Christian worldview, Dr. Ben Carson, who's a pediatric neurologist and a world-famous pediatric neurologist. Well, let's see, the only other thing of interest, and it's kind of related, was President Obama's speech at State of the Union. I didn't hear the whole thing. I heard news clips about it, and I couldn't believe it when he brought up global warming and preschool, early preschool education. It's like, don't these people ever learn... Um, you know, this is like a scientific urban legend, you know, that just keeps on and on forever and ever. It doesn't matter how much science uh, is against it. 
it'll it'll still have advocates because of you know basically confirmation bias. They want this to be true. And while this isn't exactly a Christian evidences or Christian worldview topic, we briefly covered and we did a show. We did one show on the the harm of early preschool education, and we talked about global warming in the past, but it's mainly just to point out the fact that it doesn't matter how much evidence there is. Sometimes people are just into their their way of thinking. For the, In this case, it's the secular left, and it results in a lot of harm. You know, the, the real issue at stake is that the left wants to stop industrialization. They want to stop fossil fuels, and so they'll believe anything that helps their cause no matter how flimsy the evidence is. So you just have to be open-minded. You have to examine all the evidence. You have to be familiar with both sides. And then the uh, issue with daycare, you know, the president said that every study, right, that, that was a quote, every study shows the benefits. Well, that's just simply not true. If you wanted to make it into a true statement, you would have to say something like every short-term study shows a benefit, uh, which is really not surprising, right? I mean, if you take a four-year-old and you teach them the alphabet and then you test them on their knowledge of the alphabet, they're going to do better on that test than a child who you didn't teach. Duh! (laughs) Right? So the short-term benefits are there, right? But every study... Okay, let me say that again. Every study that's a long-term study has shown either no benefit or harm. So, and most of them have shown harm. So, you know, uh, check out our podcasts. You can find them online. In this case, I'd say the left prefer to stop what they think of as parental indoctrination, right? Because they are smart. They are the ones who know right, and so they have. They want to indoctrinate your children. So the sooner they get kids into school where they can get at them, then the happier they are. Mm. Well, let's bring our guest on. We have. It's so exciting. I have been wanting to meet Jay Warner Wallace. I'm going to invite him online right now. Jay Warner Wallace, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Well, glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I have listened to your podcast. I've looked at your website. I listened to your podcast, oh, probably three years ago and listened for a long time. You do such great work, and I've never gotten a chance to meet you at any of the national conferences around, but just really excited to have a chance to speak to you online like this. Well, so, probably well, part of the reason why we haven't had a chance to meet is because uh, my work has been, uh, you know, I've always been bivocational, and so I've always tried to squeeze in as much as I could on the uh, Christian apologetics front while also holding down a job, you know, with caseload, um, right. working cold cases. So I've, I've never had a chance really until about now uh, to actually go out and, and attend some of these. I've been asked to speak at conferences, and I can try to carve my schedule out for that, but I'd sure like to attend a lot more. So so then I can kind of shift over from attending the uh, homicide conferences that I typically attend to doing some more apologetic stuff, so I'm, I'm glad to do it. So hopefully we'll get a chance to meet soon. Well, you brought up an interesting thing that I, I had a question that I wanted to ask you if we were speaking privately on in a phone call. So since you brought up the subject, I'll ask anyway on air, and that is, how do you do it? You know, I work full-time, I assume you work full-time, but you have this terrific website, you have this great podcast, you've written a book, I have no idea how anybody could possibly be that productive. Well, part of it is, I can tell you, it's it's just, and anybody probably who's tried to do a number of things at the same time will probably say the same thing. A lot of it is just that I've got great uh, support from my wife, who's been incredible uh, in terms of carrying a load, uh, raising our kids, and, and you know, when I was pastoring for a season there, she was the pastor's wife. I mean, she she basically has has made it possible for me to do a lot of other things because she's taken the reins on so many of the big things that uh, you know I typically would have to to do myself. So that's that's been the first thing. But the second part is you just don't sleep. <laughs> that's the that's the biggest thing. I, for a number of years there, probably about twelve years, 
I told myself I was never going to sleep more than six hours a night. And I would get up, I'd go to that tent and get up at four, and I would just take all those extra, what, what is that, extra two hours a day, three hours a day, and I would uh, spend them um, uh, trying to write and the podcast and do all those things that I felt, you know, committed to doing. So a lot of it is just saying, hey, there was a season there, and I think I'm past that now. I, I do think now I'm in a place where I, it's time to kind of settle down into a regular work week. But, yeah, for a season there, it was crazy. And um, I think I stretched everybody up as thin as I could stretch them. And now I think finally uh, we're at a place where we can slow down a little bit. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That is a great secret, though, if you can do it. I actually tried that one time. I went through a period where I started shortening up my sleep hours until one morning I woke up and poured the orange juice into the cereal. Yeah, so you realize it's gone too far. Well, you know, a lot of it was originally I was stressed because I was in seminary. It all started for me when I started attending seminary, and that's when I realized, wow, where is this demand on my time going to come from? And what, what, what is it going to, you know, it's, it's, they did a study years ago about guys who would buy new computers, and the learning curve on new computers, they wanted to ask the question, where do people find time? To, to learn about their new uh, computer hardware, and they, they overwhelmingly found that it comes from sleep. People would just sleep less for that season to learn how to run their new computers, and that's kind of what I did, too. And once I got in that habit, after a couple of years of, of doing that, it took me seven years to get a seminary degree. Um, that's I got in that habit, and I just stayed in it. That's That, that was really, really very helpful to kind of uh, try to achieve what I wanted to achieve in terms of apologetics. Well, I know I've worked with a lot of physicians who basically trained themselves to get by on a lot less sleep so i guess i maybe i gave up too soon but uh, yeah. it didn't work for me <laughs> it can be done it can't be done well is it okay to call you jim of course yeah i just use jay warner wallace because there's the jim wallace from sojourners and uh, he got but he, he basically used the name before i did so i felt like a deference to him and so to avoid confusion I started using my, my grandfather's name. Which is, the J. Warner Wallace is something I did for years on every search warrant I ever wrote. And I just did it as a kind of way of honoring my grandfather. And uh, so when I got to this point and started working with Greg Kovel over at Stand to Reason, he was the one who said to me as I started hosting his uh, radio show, he would say, hey, you need to start changing your name because people think that you're the other Jim Wallace. So I said, okay, I guess I'll go back to the name I use professionally, and that's what I started to do. So you're more than happy to call me Jim. That's great. Yeah. Okay, good. Because <laughs> that's right. When I first came across you, I did make that mistake also. So, Jim, tell us about yourself. You are a detective. You're currently working cold case homicides in the Los Angeles area, I believe it is? Yes, I'm in Los Angeles County, right, in South Los Angeles County, and I, I work nothing but cold cases. I, I started off in patrol, uh, working in law enforcement, and then quickly uh, moved up to a couple of investigative details, gang detail. I worked at Metro for a while, and I worked a, uh, a case, a, a team that works nothing but career criminals. And I did that uh, just an undercover position. And then we got out of that position. I started working homicides and robberies. And um, we ultimately formed a cold case team because we had a number of these homicides that just had never been solved in our agency, and we wanted to, to solve them. At the time, I can tell you, I was really considering leaving law enforcement to um, to become a pastor. And um, I had gotten saved just before that, and I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to make a career change. And I, I really, really thought hard about it. And I'm really glad I didn't do it now, because it turns out that that experience I've had working cold cases, uh, working homicides for years before that, too, uh, were, were good experiences to kind of uh, develop some tools that now I hope to help people um evaluate, you know, when they kind of look at how do I examine an event in the distant past to determine what really happened? Well, a lot of it is just being a good historian, but but uh, cold case detectives do this all the time. We, we have to examine events from the distant past. So I'm hoping to share those skills. Absolutely. And that's what makes your book so wonderful and so different from other apologetics books. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. I first want to delve more into your background but maybe I should remind people that if they're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're speaking with author J. Warner Wallace, a cold case homicide detective who's written a book called Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. So, Jim, we know you're a cold case detective. You're working now in Los Angeles doing this. But you were not always a Christian. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I was working on uh, investigations and working homicides when I first got interested in um, examining the, the Gospels. And I got interested because I was in a, I went to a church, a large church. I'd never been, um, I, I was the kind of guy who would have been more than happy to go with my wife to church if she wanted to go. She was uh, probably more of a cultural Christian at that point, and, and she, I think, would have liked us to be more involved in a local church raising our boys. I, I was more than happy to go as an atheist. I didn't think there was any need for me to go as a believer as long as I went, you know. So, but uh, she had a Catholic upbringing, and uh, so we would sometimes go to local ca- uh, masses, uh, you know, ca- Catholic churches. And uh, we moved into this part of, of this neighborhood we're in now, and we were here maybe three years. We hadn't been at any kind of a, a church anywhere in those three years. But I think uh, one Saturday I remember saying to her that I was more than happy to go the next day if she wanted to go, thinking we would probably just go down to this Catholic church in our neighborhood. I'd never been in before. And she suggested we go to this big uh, evangelical church that uh, was the first time I'd ever been in a church like that. The first time I'd ever seen live worship, uh, music, you know, I'd never seen anything like this. Um, walked in, and the pastor was uh, articulate about uh, just uh, demonstrating the kind of smart nature, the wise nature of Jesus. This is a guy who you might want to listen to, even if you're not a believer, because he's got things to say that might impact your life, might actually help you live a little better, might have to help you, you know, solve some of your problems. And that very kind of, in some ways, uh, ridiculously selfish view of who Jesus was was enough to get me interested as a very selfish non-believer. So I bought my first Bible and started pouring through just the red letters. I was not interested in Jesus as God. I was not interested in the letters of the you know Paul, of Peter, all those the, the epistles I was not concerned about. I just wanted to read the red letters. But as I did that, I became interested in characteristics of the Gospels that struck me as similar to some eyewitness accounts I've had seen, uh, you know, I've worked with, where I've got more than one eyewitness. Mm. to the same event. And those were the characteristics that got me started investigating the Gospels. So it was the potential personal benefit to yourself that made you investigate what Jesus was all about? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, see, I, mean I, have no, I had no desire to, to put that theological. I think people don't realize how important that is you know, we we hear, especially in apologetics, we hear a lot about the evidence, the evidence, the evidence. But we hear very little about what difference does it make to me, right? What are the benefits? And that's right. where I think Christian worldview is equally as important, and and showing people that there really is a big difference. And I'm assuming that you're going to tell us that Christianity made a big difference in your life, also. Well, yeah, but I can, I can tell you, I'd have been very happy to accept the wisdom of Jesus, even if it was a complete fiction. I mean, I would have been happy to look at his words as though I uh, looked at the same words of Baha'u'llah or Buddha or Socrates, not even being, you know, just some ancient vetted wisdom of the ages, mm. uh, filtered down by people over time. didn't even have to be correctly attributed to Jesus for all I cared, just as long as it seemed like it had been properly vetted by the wisdom of the ages, by people who had, you know, added things or modified things. I mean, I was more than happy, like my dad, who's still an atheist, to examine this and to consider this as a useful delusion. It did not matter to me if it was historically true. Simply did this piece of wisdom make sense, and maybe I hadn't thought of it that way, and well, okay, that, that would work for me. And those are the kinds of things, the first approach I had to Jesus. So I was still very much in my initial study of this, um, uh, you know, just a non-believer who uh, saw maybe there was some wisdom in a few of these words. What struck me, though, was, and I'm an evidentialist, what struck me was the uh, the attributes, I, I, I kind of point them out in the book, this idea of unintentional eyewitness support, the idea that these eyewitness accounts in many ways puzzled together in exactly the way I would expect two witnesses of the same event. And by the way, no two witnesses of the same event ever see the same thing. And I'll say something controversial, I believe in biblical inerrancy, but I can tell you when it comes to eyewitnesses, they do not need to be inerrant in order to be reliable. We even have a jury instruction that tells jurors that an eyewitness can be wrong about an important aspect, yet can be considered reliable on other aspects of the testimony if you can determine why it is you might have been mistaken about the first thing. So you can determine someone to be reliable even if there's an error. Now, I can tell you that really helped me as I was reading through the Gospel accounts, because I did not ever stumble over the apparent contradictions. Now, having researched through all those apparent contradictions, I've come to find that they are just exactly that. There is the apparent contradictions. But even if they had been contradictions that were more than apparent, that were real, 
I would never have had a problem with it as in terms of determining the reliability of those accounts, because that's how we look at the reliability in terms of eyewitness accounts as well. Hmm. I don't want to go too fast. Uh, we're you're talking about the reliability of witnesses, so I assume that this is what you do as a cold case detective. You examine. You, I, I guess what you have stacks of. Uh, typed yeah. out testimony that's been laying in a drawer for 10 years or, you know, tell well, us a little so bit we about have is, the... we, we have uh, cases that go back 30 years. My case is typically around 30 years old. And those accounts uh, we have uh, very good collected resources on those cases because the first investigators who investigated them had to file you know, reports of their own and assemble all these photographs and all the evidences and boxes and it's all uh, you know stored away in property and, and so we have Basically, we can go to the event as though we were there. The only problem, of course, is that our eyewitnesses are sometimes now, it's been 30 years since anyone's talked to them about the case, or they're dead, you know, or they're, some, they're unavailable to us, and all we have are photographs of the event. We can't go to the actual crime scene anymore. So those are the, the liabilities we have. But many of the tools we use to investigate an event in the distant past for which we have no living eyewitnesses, and sometimes, in my cases, never have compelling forensic evidence, well, that's very much what we're doing when we look at this event in the first century, Jesus' resurrection, the life and ministry of Jesus, an event in the distant past, no living eyewitnesses, and no forensic evidence. It turns out the exact same skill set works in both settings. That's why I was felt compelled to share what the tool set is so people can actually look at it and say, okay, now I, I can apply those principles as I study the scriptures. Well, you know, and that's what one thing that makes your book so different. I mean, I have a big library full of apologetic books, and I'll pick up a new book because as I look through it, I'm thinking, well, you know, this is basically the same old stuff, but maybe there's 5% of it or 10% of it, if it's really well written, that I'm either not familiar with or it's done a different way. But when I look at your book, it's entirely in a different way. It's really a just a new, interesting way of approaching the evidence. I, I think it would be fantastic for people not only who study apologetics regularly to get a fresh look um, at some of the things, but also for people who've never dared to look at an apologetics book because they look at it and they think, oh, this is like a textbook. I'm not going to read this. But maybe they are fans of detective fiction or uh, you know they're interested in these recent crime shows and things like that. This really, or maybe they work in law enforcement for that matter. I mean, I've got a, a son who's a, a criminal analyst, and I'm just thinking, you know what? The, this would be helpful for him to you know learn how to process evidence. Right. Well, I'm hoping it will be. I can tell you that that I tried to write it. Well, a couple of things. Number one, you know, I, I have a master's degree in theology, and, and that's something that I was. I did en route to becoming a pastor, but I, I always thought, going looking back at it, should I have gotten a master's degree in Christian apologetics or philosophy or something else? In other words, something that would have helped me uh, as I'm at this point in my life where I'm making this case. But it turns out the thing that I did have is a 25-year degree in evidence. This is what I do for a living. And I thought, you know what, There's, this is who I am. Uh, I get a chance to talk. Uh, you know, I get on a conference here in a couple of weeks with William Lane Craig. When you're on the stage with folks like that, you think to yourself, what in the world am I doing here? This is a guy that's not even in this guy's shadow. Okay, right. this, this is, I'm totally out of my league. But what I've learned is, is that there's a place for those of us who have a different skill set, uh, and if it's, if it's, especially if it applies to the studying of evidence, um, that, that I can come in and write something, I think, which is probably going to be accessible because I refuse to use words that, that cause um, jurors problems. I mean, I know in working cases, you just don't use words that jurors have to scratch their head and ask for readback ten times and ask a lot of questions. You want to, I try, I try to keep it simple, stupid, and that's that's first of all who I am as a person and how I write to begin with. But I also know there's a certain value in narratives, and I just try to share uh, my own casework. I try to share a story of every case I've, you know, every chapter that begins. I try to share a story about how this principle has helped me in my casework. And then I try to turn a corner with it and show it how it might help you or anybody uh, to look at this evidence in a new way. And, and right. so that's my, my hope. But that is the, the, the limit and maybe and also the blessing of the kind of work I'm doing is that I, I don't have degrees in philosophy or apologetics. No, I think you're going with your strengths. You probably would have been molded into a, a, a kind of a lesser form of some of those 
apologetic leaders that are out there and you would have been doing the same thing that they're doing, only not as well as they do it, but you're doing instead what you know. Yeah, you have to run in your lane, and that's the thing that I try to tell people who who want to start in this field of apologetics. I, I ask them, I say, well, who are you? Because that's going to determine who you ought to be as an apologist. And I always say this, that you know, we have a so we have several really well-known, incredibly valuable apologists. I call them million-dollar apologists. But what we really mm. need are a million-one-dollar apologists, and that's what we have to become. We have all of us have to figure out a way to turn our personal experience into an opportunity to become a one-dollar apologist. And that word, I hate that word, but that's that's really the the you know, I, I call it Christian case making. We've got to become Christian case makers, and and how do we do it? Well, we start by looking at our own lives, and that's what I tried to do when I wrote the book. Well, if I could sum up the book in just a sentence or two, I'd say that it's about the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels, but it's more so about how to think about the evidence, how to examine the evidence, how to weigh the evidence, and that's where the strength of this book comes in, because it's teaching you not just evidence. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that, Keith. I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I had somebody write a review um, when they said, hey, it was a good book, but he doesn't spend enough time on the cosmological argument. Or <laughs> he, you know, he mentions that he doesn't spend a lot of time digging through it. And, and I thought, well, yeah, that's it's, it's true. I don't, because I'm not really as concerned with the argument itself. But I'm more concerned about how is it you assemble arguments like this to make circumstantial cases. So when trying to show this in a, in a chapter on circumstantial evidence, trying to show how this puzzle goes together, why... The, uh, the strength of a cumulative circumstantial case works, I will have to mention these arguments, but I did not want to probe them deeply. That's the next book. I mean, I'll, I'm sure I'll be writing again. So, so that's where I'm headed next. But for this one, I simply wanted to show uh, how evidence works. And one of the biggest tool sets we can give people is to help them understand the value of circumstantial evidence. Every case I do is entirely circumstantial. I just did a case. It's going to be on Dateline this Friday, the 22nd. You'll see it on Dateline on Friday night. It's a case I did from 1981 to nobody missing. It's a missing person, and he reported his wife missing. She killed her, of course, but he reported her missing, and I got rid of the body. And for 30 years, people believed that story, that she ran off. When I got the case, there was no body, no crime scene, not a single piece of physical evidence. There was nothing. So without any physical evidence, we made a case. The jury found him guilty in four and a half hours, and you'll see a surprise ending to this. I won't give it away if you watch Dateline on Friday night. It was an excellent example of the power. Because on Keith Morrison, I mean, they cut this part out, but when he interviewed me, the first thing he was after was, come on, Jim, this is no evidence here. Why do you even think it's true? After the conviction, no one believes it. His family doesn't believe it. The victim's family doesn't believe he's guilty. They love this guy. And, and why would you think he's guilty based on such slim circumstantial evidence? And, of course, I'll at the end of the show uh, demonstrate why that's the case. But, but I think we have to realize as Christian casemakers that we have a very robust, uh, cumulative, circumstantial case for many different pieces of this puzzle. And once you understand how to assemble such cases, I think you're better off when you describe this to your friends and make the case to others. Well, I have well, a quick question. Yeah. This is Kirk. Um, as I'm listening to you describe what you do, it sounds, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds very uh, similar to what a historian does in studying history. Is it, can you kind of elaborate on how what you do is similar to, what, to the research that historians do and how dissimilar it is? Yeah, I think I can. That's, that's a great point, and you're absolutely right. Especially cold cases, they are events in the past, so they're historical events. And you're absolutely right that these are um, very much similar to uh, what history historians do. As a matter of fact, I have a chapter on abductive reasoning, and that's probably as close as we come to drawing parallels to the work that historians do. And we talk about it in terms of a death scene, you know, how do we determine between a natural and accidental, a suicidal and a homicide. And that's when you get to every death scene, you've got to figure out which of these four is it. Because, by the way, if it's not a homicide, I don't really care. I mean, I'm going to go home. But if it's, if it's a homicide, I've got to stay and work it. And that might sound kind, of, sound, sound kind of callous, but it's an important skill set to figure out. Is it a natural, an accident, or a suicide? Because if it is, it's not a homicide. And that skill set of using abductive reasoning requires us at some point to say, well, why do we think this is the most reasonable inference from the evidence? Why is this one? So I, in the book, actually list the principles that I say 
point to whether something is reasonable. <clears throat> you know, I mean, that, that, what, what makes it the most reasonable conclusion? And that's probably about as close as I get. And I use my own terms because those are just terms that um, that work for me. They, they, they're the terms that I've used training other detectives. They're the terms that I use as I, as I think through the process. So um, they're a little bit different maybe than uh, what other people might list. So for example, when I hear William Lane Craig talk about the skill sets that uh, historians use, when he talks about them, they, they seem to me to be a little bit uh, different kind of wording. So I make a point of saying in the book, hey, when I'm talking about the truth must be feasible, I'm talking about something that I call explanatory viability. Now, there may be somebody else out there using explanatory viability in a historical sense. I don't know, because I'm not familiar with the work of historians. So I know that I look at things like explanatory viability, explanatory simplicity, explanatory depth, explanatory consistency. These are things that I look at and say, hey, you know, um, give me explanatory superiority. I'm looking at things that I say uh, help me to decide that this suspect or this conclusion about this depth is the most reasonable. But I suspect there's probably... Uh, the work of historians is very similar, and they may look at they even have some similar terms. And I'm probably not using mine the same way they're using theirs. Hmm. So, how strong is the case? You talked about a guy that with you started out with very little evidence, and you you got a conviction. How strong is the evidence for the Gospels? Uh, is it enough to get a conviction? Well, I, the, the, the standard of proof um, is different depending on the kind of case you're working in. So. It's the, it's the lowest when things like child custody gets a little higher. It gets towards civil cases. When you get to criminal cases, the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the standard we have to train jurors to understand. And it's hard. You know, the, the, even the language we use when, when instructing jurors can sometimes be confusing when you're talking about reasonable doubt. Do I think we have a case beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes. And the reason why I say that is because I break doubt into two different categories, reasonable doubts and possible doubts. And there are lots of possible doubts, anything you can imagine. It is possible. Um, and, and sometimes people get mad at me. Uh, the, the, the critics, the skeptics get mad at me for using terms like that because they think, well, hey, it's not like we just are only have possible doubts. We have doubts that we consider to be reasonable. Okay, well, then what we're looking at then, if we're not looking at just the breakdown between possible and reasonable, there are some doubts that are simply less reasonable, dramatically less reasonable than um, the, the, what we can call the standard. Let me give you an example of this. Had a case years ago, a guy kills his wife and kills her for about $40,000 of his retirement money that he did not want to give her. She managed to work it into the sale of the house. So when the house sold, she got her $40,000 off the top. He found out about it on a Wednesday, got his gun on Thursday, killed her on Friday. Now, when he did it, um, we took him to trial eventually, and the defense attorney said, hey, isn't it possible? Kind of thinking out loud to the jury. You can see he's going this way, um, that this was a, a botched burglary. You know, somebody uh, came into a burglary, and uh, she was in the house, packing the house up, and uh, surprised him, and he and then just ended up shooting her. We had to say, well, time out. Do we have any evidence of forced entry? Do we have any evidence that anything's been taken from the house? Any evidence that anyone's been in the house except the husband and the wife? Do we have any evidence there's burglaries in the neighborhood? You know, there are rash of burglaries about this time. There's none of that. So while you have a possibility that's been uttered, the possibility this is a botched burglary, it's not supported by the evidence in the same way that our argument for the husband's involvement is supported by the evidence. And the things that are not supported by evidence are called possible doubts. The things that are, are supported by evidence are called you know, reasonable inferences. So, so what we want to, be, to help juries understand is that they've got to be focused on what's the reasonable inference and keep the possibilities on the whiteboard that they should not enter into their thinking, especially if they've got you know, one piece of evidence that might support this possibility, yet 50 pieces of evidence to support the reasonable inference, you've got to let go. Uh, you're beyond a reasonable doubt. You've got to let go of that possibility, because that's really all it is. It's a possibility. If I said, hey, isn't it possible that Jesus is a, recreate, a recreation of Mithras? I would always say the same thing I say to everybody who asks me the question, isn't it possible, X? I always say, absolutely it's possible. It's absolutely possible that Jesus is a recreation of Mithras, but it's not reasonable. And guess what? Possible doesn't matter. In jury trials, possible doesn't matter. In our thinking here, all that matters is what's reasonable. If you look at the evidence, you'll see quickly that there is no evidence to support this recreation of Mithras into Jesus. And so this is why I think you have to look at and separate out possible doubt from reasonable doubt. And it's it's amazing how many people don't get this. Uh, you know, I was just on a jury uh, maybe a little over a year ago, possibly two years ago, and I was an alternate, so I got to see all of the evidence. It was a, a very sad rape case, and there was DNA evidence. There was the victim had, had a artist 
rendering done that exactly matched the suspect or the defendant. There was a jailhouse confession. There was uh, the per- the the defendant worked in the area and visited people uh, nearby, so there was access. The timing worked out everything, but one person on the jury thought that it was possible that someone else could have had a syringe of this person's DNA and left it at the crime scene. Right. And they, they hung the jury. It took four days, and they finally hung. Well, I can tell you that, that one of the things you can do is if you see that coming, and I mean, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Casey Anthony, I think, was another case that I thought was was dramatic in terms of a jury being hung up on possibilities that had been uttered by the defense attorneys without the support of evidence. What we try to do is before we let that jury go, uh, as a prosecution side of the case, we try to help them remember when you get into that jury room, if someone says, isn't it possible that to stop them? Because that is not, that's called speculating. Speculation in a jury room is not allowed. And just tell them, hey, they're breaking the, the, the rules that the judge has set for you. Is you are not allowed to speculate on possibilities that are not supported by the evidence. And if you think they are, great. Get on the whiteboard, start charting it out. And tell yourself, ask yourself, how many pieces of evidence actually point to that conclusion? And then ask yourself, how many pieces of evidence point to the other conclusion that's being offered? And let's see which one, let's, let's battle each other out and see which one is the best in terms of reasonable uh, evidence that's, that's making the case. And I think this is one of those tools you have to, this is why I'm pretty modest about my clients. What I don't do is this. I never say I'm going to prove to you something because I don't believe I've ever proven anything to anybody. I simply have provided them the evidence, and whether it's proof or not, that's what they have to decide in their own mind. Proof is in the eye of the beholder. And so you have, I, I try to be modest about that claim. I, I want to, I'll get evidence, but I can't prove this to you. You will decide if this is proof. And right. if you think, know how to think through the evidence, you're probably going to come to the same conclusion I did. But, but at the same time, I, I don't want to be overly... Um, braggadocious or uh, bold about my claims. So when someone says to me, isn't it possible, Jim, this or that? I'm always going to say, well, of course it's possible. Absolutely it's possible. I think it's a good place to start. But you'll discover as you work through the evidence, it's not reasonable. And all that matters is reasonable. Let me give you an example of this. If, you're, if you think your husband is cheating on you or your wife is cheating on you, that's a possibility. Would you act until you first had evidence of this? If you do, you're kind of crazy because you're at, you're, it, anything's possible and you become paranoid thinking about the possibilities. But once you have evidence to support this, then you can actually begin to have a discussion with your with your, your spouse. So I think most of us in our lives recognize that we don't act on possibilities. We act on reasonable inferences. And that's why we have to be careful because we're in a culture that will toss out every conspiracy theory, will toss out all kinds of possibilities. Sometimes these are motivated by other desires that the culture has. And we have to stop and say, hey, possibilities are great, but they're not what matters. What matters are reasonable inferences. Well, if we concentrated on possibilities all the time in juries, most juries wouldn't be able to function that way because they could come up with almost anything. Like I'm thinking your example that you just gave of the woman being killed, well, it's possible that a little green Martian came down in a spaceship and shot her too. But is that reasonable? No. Right, and I think sometimes you have to be careful uh, not to, I mean, I've done this too, where I've, I've used, you know, um, the little green uh, Martians, you know, I even said it's in a talk where I say hey, it's possible we're not even have this conversation, we've been kidnapped by aliens or in some <laughs> mind meld right now and they're making us think this, but, <laughs> but I know that for the most skeptics, myself included, I never thought of my alternate explanations as being as crazy as alien invasion. So I, I know I, when I say that, be careful not to, 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 to have this view that, that, that uh, maybe the, the skeptic thinks, I think his ideas are that crazy. I mean, I, nobody I've met so far is, has been more angrily skeptical about the claims of Christianity than I was for 35 years. I've yet to meet somebody who was a bigger jerk about his opposition to Christianity than I was for all those years. So now that I'm on this side, and I'm, I'm looking at the evidence and trying to demonstrate it, I try to be very careful to respect the position that I held for so many years. I'm not angry about it. I don't feel like I have to get defensive about it or loud about it. I can very quietly say, hey, here's the evidence I see, and you may not agree with me, but uh, this is this is what, what brought me to a conclusion which I think is reasonable, given the evidence in front of us. And I do think that God uses that evidence, that clearly I was unable, prior to, to God doing something first, to ever even 
see the evidence clearly because I had an enemy toward God that I was not willing to surrender. I was happy being my own God. So I know that God had to do something first, but the means by which God then brought me to this place was through the evidence that he's provided in his world and in the Scripture. And I think that's reasonable, and I think that's what God does. I mean, Jesus says this in John 14, if you don't believe the things I'm telling you, at least believe upon the miracles that I've demonstrated in front of you, and they'll give you evidence. At least believe that. He right. sticks around for, for 40 days and acts one and provides convincing proofs post-resurrection. I mean, my gosh, you really I need more convincing proofs for 40 days after the resurrection? So I think it seems that Jesus has got a high regard for uh, backing what he says with, um, with evidences, with proofs. And so I think that that's all we're trying to do when we, when we... And that's why I wanted to do two things, Keith. Give mm. ten principles that people can put their hands around so you can become a better detective. And then say, hey, if we applied these ten principles to the Gospels, where would we end up if we tested them for reliability the same way we test witnesses in court? Where do we, where do we land? And so I'm hoping that this book does that. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking with author Jim Wallace, author of Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. And Jim, you were talking about the way the book is broken down. You have 10 principles that investigators need to consider when they're looking at a case. And then part two is four questions to ask the witnesses. And so it's really intriguing the way that it's laid out. So in the amount of time that we have left, can you give us, say, your favorite? What's what's the most important principle or your favorite principle that you think that someone who is going to calmly and rationally investigate the evidence, what do they need to consider? Well, I think a couple of things. And, and this is going to come down to an eyewitness account that's recorded in Scripture. Are these eyewitness accounts? Sometimes people will say, well, clearly they're not eyewitness accounts because they're talking about things that some of these eyewitnesses, like Matthew, for example, clearly wasn't there for the birth of Jesus. So he's not an eyewitness to this. So how can you say he's an eyewitness in the Gospels? But remember, folks, when people talk about things in the distant past, like in cold cases, they're going to give you first-hand observations or experiences, things they actually saw. They're going to give you things they had first-hand access to. And sometimes that means they talked to somebody at the time who told them something. And thirdly, they're going to give you a first-hand um, uh, access to the worldview in which, uh, which existed at the time of this uh, event. This happens in every cold case. So I don't just have what he, my witness saw. They'll say, yeah, and then she told me yesterday that he did this. Now, I can't get that thing that she told him yesterday into court. That's called hearsay. But I can certainly use it as an investigative uh, principle. I can take that information he gave me. If I learn to trust it, if it's trustworthy, I can move forward in my investigation based on something he told me that someone said to him. So these are the same things we're seeing in the Gospels. Those three aspects of eyewitness accounts are in the Gospels. You get access to what he actually saw, access to what he heard from others, and access to the world in which he lives, which he's familiar with, the traditions, the customs, the language, all of that stuff. So learning to look through the Gospels as, as eyewitness accounts, and if that's the case, we've got to evaluate them, that's the second half of the book. I've had people kind of call me and say, hey, I, I love the first half of the book for best because it gives me ten principles I think are really valuable. And some people will say, well, that's great, but I like the second half best because it's the more academic kind of approach now. You're taking those ten principles and digging through the evidence. I think that most of the kind of new stuff that we're going to talk about in this book we're probably going to do in the first ten chapters, but, but when we get into the actual examination of the of the account, I think that I don't know many people who who take a detective's approach to, to digging through these. You know, if I was going to have a witness who's going to come to me and say, "Hey, thirty years ago, this guy was born, and then he died on a cross and he rose from the dead," if that was a case from just thirty years ago, I would be applying the exact same skill set to determine if that was true that I try to apply to the Gospels today. So I get a chance to kind of see how a detective moves through uh, a guy winning an eyewitness. So I'm not quite sure which is going to have more value to people, but I hope that together they'll be valuable. Well, one of the things that I think was very, very valuable as I was perusing the book is you talk about the chain of custody. And that is something that's really very little talked about. I'm surprised at all the, the books I have on apologetics. The chain of custody is not really paid much attention to it. I've run across it once, I, I think once before I've run across it. So can you give us a little bit about the way you spell out in 
quite a bit of detail about how the chain of custody works and why it's important. Yeah, you know, to get a case where you've got somebody who, who like, kind of like the O.J. Simpson case, in the sense that there was an accusation that the blood from the crime scene was later deposited in his house. It didn't actually, it wasn't there to begin with. Let's say you've got a case from 30 years ago, you've got some piece of, of evidence in the case, but you don't know, how do I know that that knife, let's say, was actually at the crime scene? How do I know that knife was not dropped into the property room box, you know, 10 years after the fact, so it wasn't even part of the original case? When I get to court, how do I trust the knife was actually at the crime scene? Well, that's kind of what happens with the Gospels. You, you get a claim, say John's claims about Jesus. How do I know it hasn't been changed over the years? John describes Jesus as this smart rabbi who teaches some cool stuff, and then over the years, this the story gets changed and altered until finally Jesus is the you know the the God, is God Himself. Uh, it's very divine in the Gospel of John. So how do I know that that hasn't changed over the years? Well, in a crime scene, in a real investigation, what you do is you go back and you look for Polaroids. Is there a picture of the knife at the crime scene? Do I have an officer who picked it up, who signed it out, who booked it in the property, who, who gave it to another detective who signed for it and took another picture and brought it to the crime lab, and the crime lab signed for it and took a picture and processed it, gave it back to the detective who signed for it and took a picture. You get the idea. Until mm. we finally get that knife in court. Well, that's what we're doing here. We're looking for multiple pictures of the same piece of evidence over the years to demonstrate a chain of custody. And we're doing the same thing with the Gospel. There's a picture of Jesus that John takes in the Gospel of John. But right away, he's going to start teaching his students. And we have the work of those students. Ignatius and Polycarp wrote letters that have survived. And in those letters, we see a yet another snapshot of the second officer in the chain of custody. They have a student named Irenaeus, yet another snapshot in Irenaeus's writing. He has a student named Hippolytus, yet another snapshot of Hippolytus's writing. So... We look at these snapshots over time and we ask ourselves a question. Does Jesus change? Is he becoming more divine with each generation? Or is Jesus pretty much the same guy he always has been? And what you discover, of course, is that you're stuck. And I've actually made a list of every character, every uh, expression used to describe Jesus by Ignatius and Polycarp, and also, let's say, Clement, who's a student of Paul. If you look at all these statements, you'll see that nothing has changed. I mean, if the concepts and claims about Jesus, if you lost the authors, uh, the biblical writing, if you lost the, uh, the uh, canon, you still have the very first generation of officers that took a Polaroid who would be taking a Polaroid of Jesus. He looks exactly the same as he did in the Gospels, in all the letters of Ignatius, Polycarp, and Clement. So you're stuck with the, the early repeated testimony of history, the chain of custody is consistent, and you can use it to determine if that thing you have at the first council of Laodicea, where where you've got the canon being acknowledged, is that the same gospel they've had, you know, 300 years prior? Well, the chain of custody says that it is. So. Wonderful. Well, Jim, uh, well, Jim, we we only have a couple of minutes, but could you uh, possibly fill us in before we go about your uh, your website? And I understand you have a podcast too. Is that right? Yeah, I, yeah. Years ago, I started taking the information that I was giving my students in uh, in, in my youth group in my church. That I, I launched a church. We would do apologetics every every single weekend, and I started posting that the, the sermons I would give on pleaseconvinceme.com, and uh, that grew over the years. I've got a couple of other officers now who help me blog there, and a district attorney who also blogs there with me. So it's kind of an all law enforcement uh, um, website now. And uh, then I got a chance in January to join Stand a Reason, uh, which is a ministry here in Southern California. Greg Kogel's got a radio show um, every weekend. He's got a stable of, of faculty speakers, myself, Greg, uh, Brett Kunkel, and Alan Schleeman, uh, go around the country now uh, sharing what we've learned uh, with uh, audiences and churches and different kinds of groups, uh, college campuses. So I got a chance to join Stand a Reason. So now the best place to find me is either on a website that supports the book, coldcasechristianity.com. I blog there every day, so you'll see the kinds of things I'm, I'm working through and the kinds of things that I'm looking at. Uh, you find those daily at Cold Case Christianity. And if you wanted to reach me uh, to do anything as far as speaking, you can either reach me at Cold Case Christianity or at the Stand to Reason uh, website, which is str.org. Terrific. Wonderful. Wonderful. So... Tell us a little bit about kind of what kinds of things people would find on the webcast. I know I've you you have a ton of material there. 
Yeah, and you know, for the most part, I try to talk about the issues that I'm uh, looking at. So if I, if I give you an example, uh, this week I'm preparing for the uh, March 1st Apologetics Canada Conference. I wanted to bring up some new material. that I've been up there a few times, and I wanted to do a complete crime scene on the stage and talk about the difference between artifacts and evidence at crime scenes and relate that to artifacts and evidence that we see in Scripture. So this is a kind of a project I've been working on for a couple of weeks. So naturally, I'm thinking about these things, and uh, as I think about them, I'll start blogging about them. And then, of course, I get to every Monday, I sit down and I do an hour and 15 minutes uh, on a podcast where I'm typically kind of sharing the things that I'm working through. And I think it has some value, but it's going to be very much kind of whatever Jim's looking at right now. <laughs> of course, if the, if the current events help uh, get me thinking about things, then I'll, I'll talk about those as well. But I think it's really now that podcast and that blog, probably more than anything else, just kind of some uh, thinking that kind of uh, emerges out of the book and topics that are in the book. So for a season, at least, as I'm kind of talking about the book and, and supporting it by going around the country and talking, the, the, probably that podcast and that blog are going to be reflective of those issues, you know. So that's, that's okay. where I'm at right now. Well, you, you end the book with something about becoming a two-decision Christian, why don't we yeah. end up with you telling us about that? What's a two-decision Christian? Well, I think a lot of us have made a first decision to trust Christ for uh, our salvation. And, of course, that's the thing that God honors and says, you know, this is the thing that we that saved us, is our decision to, 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 to really realize the mess that we are and the mess that we're in. And the, the fact that only God alone can save us from that and that what Christ did on that cross is the thing that did save us. And so uh, I think we make that first decision to trust Christ I call that one decision Christianity. But the thing that strikes me is that we always feel guilty that we don't share our faith more, that we're not more evangelistic, that we aren't better evangelists. But you see Paul saying in Ephesians 4 that not everybody's an evangelist. Some are evangelists, some of you are pastors, some of you are teachers. That means that some of you aren't. But Paul, about Peter rather, in 1 Peter 3, does not give us that option when he talks about being a good Christian casemaker. We're all to be ready with the reason for the hope we have within us. So I look at this and I say, okay, it appears to me that when I live a life in which I'm not making a case for what I believe, I'm living an abbreviated Christian life. I'm a one-decision Christian, but I'm not a two-decision Christian. I haven't made the second decision to share what I believe, to, to make a case for what I believe. And so that my hope is that this book helps people to see why that's so important. And I don't want to live an abbreviated Christian life. Right. I feel this compulsion to, to, to share what I believe. Well, I, it's about making a case for what you believe. That's the Wonderful. Decision the book is make. Cold Case Christianity. The author is Jim Wallace. Jim, thank you for being a guest on Evidence for Faith. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,